let's move to our question tonight. This is probably um, one of the more interesting questions that uh, we talked about, thought about, read about, um, handling in this series. How can you take the Bible literally? And truth be told, all cards on the table, some of the information from our previous weeks is going to bleed into this particular sermon because of the nature of it. So how can you take the Bible literally? Um, it is seems laughable to a lot of people, especially the people that I talk to, that you would even consider taking the Bible literally. Like, there's some pretty crazy stuff. Dude getting swallowed by a fish, uh, guy walking on water, guy feeding 5,000 people, guy taking dirt, spitting into it, creating clay, putting it on a blind man's eyes, and then he can see when the mud is washed away. Seems interesting. Then you've got all the Levitical, like those first five books of the Bible that not a lot of Christians read um, because they're interesting or boring. We A lot of times we try to church up boring stuff. We say it's interesting, meaning it's something that somebody should probably read and hit us with the highlights, but we don't. So you've got those books and you really want to take that stuff literally and then all the, the, the different things that take place in the Old and New Testament, and then you read the end. Uh, Revelation, like, what, what is going on there? So the Bible can be a pretty intimidating book, and then when you tell people that you actually believe what it says, then people think, okay, well, that guy's three fries short of a happy meal. But how can you take the Bible literally? If we're sitting in the room tonight, we've got to answer this question. How can you take the Bible literally? How can you understand it to mean what it actually says? And so tonight, what I would like to do in our time together um, is really to answer three objections to taking the Bible literally. So people have lots of objections to reading the Bible literally. That's why we do a live Q&A, because I only have 30 to 35 minutes here to do a sermon. So I'm going to address the, what I would perceive to be or have read or have heard to be the major objections. And then the Q&A gives you time to get specific and ask those things as well. And so tonight I would like to take us through three primary objections that people say this is a reason why you can't take the Bible literally. And that first objection is the Bible is culturally out of date. One of the reasons why we can't understand the Bible to be a literal document is because it, it's so culturally regressive. I mean, come on, read the passage about how women are supposed to be submissive to their husbands. The Bible talks a lot about slavery and seems to promote it. So how in the world can you take this literally? So if you have your Bibles, and I really hope that you brought them with you tonight. If you didn't, there's one in front of you. You can go to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to address one of the more common claims um, that this is a perfect reason why people shouldn't stay away from the Bible. In fact, some would go as far not only to say you shouldn't take the Bible literally, but that the Bible is a very dangerous book because um, of what it teaches. And I told you the wrong place to go. I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 6. You're probably like, Ephesians chapter 5 seems really nice, talking about love and all of those great things. But Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse number 5, this is what the Bible says. Bond servants, be obedient to those 
who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So these verses here, verses 5 through 9 of Ephesians chapter 6, seem to be troublesome because the Bible is culturally out of date if it's suggesting that slaves should be obedient to their masters. What do we do with this particular problem? More often than not, the reason why we don't understand the Bible is not because the Bible is not clear. And just before we move any further, some of your Bibles probably say slaves. Some of them say bondservants. The Greek word is doulos, which is slave. Um, that's how it's commonly understood. So you have this text that says obey your masters. And what do we normally run to? Well, you and I run to our understanding of slavery rather than the Bible's understanding of slavery. This is one of the reasons why we talk about in Bible interpretation, understanding what we commonly refer to as a cultural context. Meaning, just because you read the text now doesn't mean it was written in your context or written in your day. The Bible is specifically, and we should know this, I don't want to say incredibly old, but it is old. It's 2,000 plus years old. So I guess it is incredibly old. It's older than everybody in the room by a long shot. And there are some old people sitting in the room tonight. Uh, just saying. And so what do we do with this? Well, your understanding of slavery and my understanding of slavery, especially in light of the African slave trade of the 18th and 19th century, or even human trafficking that we experience and see going on today, are completely different than the biblical understanding of slavery. In fact, in the first century Roman Empire, when the actual New Testament was being written, there was not really a great difference between slaves and the average free person. In fact, slaves were not distinguishable from others by race, speech, or even by their clothing that they wore. It would have been incredibly difficult for you or I to walk down the street in the first century Roman world and go, slave person, free person, slave person, free person. Contrast that with 18th century African slave trade, which is incredibly heinous and incredibly oppressive and incredibly, incredibly bad. So in the first century Roman Empire, those slaves and free people looked and lived most like everyone else. They're not segregated in the rest of society. And from a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as those who were free. So even as we begin to unpack our understanding of slavery from the first century Roman world and what we understand 18th and 19th century slavery, or even could we just say segregation? Because even though we might say slavery didn't exist post-13th Amendment, at some level, oppression continued and still continues to this day. The idea of redlining, the idea of making it impossible for minorities or others to improve on their social status and class, at some level is a forced sense of segregation that continues. At some level, and I know this is going to be offensive to some people in the room tonight, but it still continues at some level today. 
even in this country. So you contrast new world, our world slavery, and it's much more systematically brutal and oppressive. And I think the reason why Christians struggle to answer this objection, can I just be, I know that last little bit sucked all the oxygen out of the room. But can we just be honest? One of the reasons why we struggle to answer this is because historically we really don't understand how bad slavery really was in this country. When we think of chattel slavery, Lord help me be kind. And the arguments by Christians for it to continue is probably the most heinous thing that's ever taken place in this country. Even more heinous than actual slavery would be Christians writing and arguing and forming around the basis of continuing to keep slavery in existence. 18th century slavery, the slave's whole person was the property of the master. He or she could be raped, maimed, or killed at the will of the owner. In the older bond service or indentured servitude, only slaves' productivity, their time and skills were owned by the master and only temporarily. African slaves, however, is based on race, and its default mode was slavery for life. And also, just by way of reference, the African slave trade was begun and resourced through kidnapping. All of which, you can cross-reference this with 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 11, and Deuteronomy 24, 7 is condemned in Scripture. So if we understand culturally what first century slavery looked like and contrast it with what you and I were taught about slavery, and at some level we're not probably even understand as in-depth as we might think that we do, we find that they're two completely different ideological and systematic understandings. And as Christians, we can say the idea that I can't accept the Bible because it's culturally out of date doesn't hold water because you actually have to see the evidence that exists inside of first century Roman world versus 18th century slavery. And this is where Christians need to be vocal. I think sometimes we're intimidated to talk about this subject because I know this because one of the first questions that I'm asked when I talk about this topic on any university campus is what denomination I'm affiliated with. And the minute that I tell them that I'm a Southern Baptist, it doesn't take very long for them to point out, well, you all formed because you wanted to be able to keep your slaves. And I will admit that is true. It's 100% true. This is historically accurate. But praise God that like you and like me, we can change. We can be convicted, convicted, convinced, sense the conviction of the Holy Spirit of areas where we were wrong, sinful, and needed to repent of and have done that. And to simply suggest that Christianity cannot be followed because of a cultural misstep by a group of people is to subjugate all of Christianity to certain movements throughout history. Think of the Crusades that are they're absolutely terrible, not defensible according to the scriptures. 
We cannot define Christianity based on historical movements any more than we can define different people groups based on what some of their ruling class has done. No one goes up to Germans today and suggests that they are as bad as their Nazi forebearers. But yet Christians are continually subjugated to people who have done things in the past in the name of Christ. Which just means you can take something pure, holy, and good and use it for evil. You can take Christianity and you can use it as a weapon to hurt rather than a salve to heal or a movement to change the world. So I'd encourage you to your friends that maybe say the Bible is can't be taken literally because it's culturally out of date. Maybe you're the person sitting in here tonight who says, that's my argument. I would encourage you to read the Bible according to its original context and according to when it was written and what it was written for. Also notice two things, and then I'll move to our next point. Two things I'd like to point out. The Bible never once celebrates slavery inside of its writings. And number two, one of the most oppressive slavery situations that have ever taken place in the history of mankind takes place in the book of Exodus, where the Egyptians hold the Israelites in captivity. And it gets so bad, and it's so oppressive, and Pharaoh continues to turn the heat up on the Israelites, and the one who sets them free, the one who liberates them from their slavery, is none other than the God of, of the Bible. So God is definitely not for slavery. He is not pro-slavery. And in fact, in oppressive situations, regressive situations, God is the one who is rescuing and pulling people out. But this isn't the only objection that takes place to why we can't trust the Bible literally. The second objection, and this one is prevalent, not as prevalent as number one. This is an older uh, objection, is that the Bible just is not scientifically accurate. Go to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, one of the most startling claims scientifically that has ever been made is made inside of Genesis 1. I want to just be honest as you're flipping over there. I've been incredibly helped in my thinking on this particular issue by Ken Ham, um, Answers in Genesis Ministry. Um, and he has really helped me to think through this argument. I would encourage you, if you have more scientific questions, we can certainly try and tackle them in the Q&A. But I would highly recommend Answers in Genesis as a place to go to um, handle maybe very technical pieces of scientific information. I will just be honest. I am not a classically trained scientist. I know that shocks a lot of you in the room. You're like, what? It's not true. Well, it's not true. I will say it. it's not true. I am not a classically trained scientist. But one thing I do know is the Bible makes a very bold scientific claim in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So evening and the morning were the first day. Genesis 1.1 makes the most startling scientific claim of all of Scripture. 
that God created the heavens and the earth. And this has, in the modern era of science, created a lot of debate, to say the least. And I think it is worth noting here that in order to sort out some of the confusion that exists about, well, you can't take the Bible literally because it claims that God created the heavens and the earth, and that's just not scientifically accurate. I mean, David, come on, settled science, right? This is a term you hear all the time. I hear this all the time. David, it is settled science that the earth has expanded into a zoo. Settled. What are you doing? Talk about God created the heavens and the earth. Well, I would like to suggest that it's anything but settled science Unless by settled science you mean it's settled according to the scripture. And here's the reason why. We can honestly divide science into two different categories. Operational or observe what we can observe from science and historical science. We need to make those two key distinctions. You're like, who cares about observable and historic science? Well, you should. Because observable science is something that can be gained by, and I know this is going to rock your world tonight, especially those of you who are like engineers and physicists and nuclear engineers and people who are going to like build the nuclear bombs. Like, I know this is going to blow your mind, but when it comes to observation, using the five senses and based on repeatable testing, we can know what is operational science. You're like, that's earth shattering. I'm really glad that I paid attention to my ninth grade biology class for you to tell me that tonight. But it is worth drawing this distinction. And here's the reason why. Because when it comes to historic science, people make claims as if it's observational when it's historic. In other words, they make claims about the beginning of the universe that they can't logically make based on observable, repeatable data. And you say, prove it. Okay, I will. You can't make a claim about the starting of the earth as if it's observational science without there being another earth created that we all observe. That's an impossibility. So when we make a historic claim, I would just like to argue tonight from Scripture that we're not making an observable claim here when we say that God created the heavens and the earth. We're making a historic claim. And we're making a uniquely historic claim in this sense. Because I'm going to go back to our presupposition. We believe that the Bible is the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God. And it is the only thing for observable, practicable, and relational faith. That's what gives the Christian the right to say this book is literal. Going back to 2 Timothy 3.16-17, all scripture is breathed out by God, is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We are making a historic claim. We're not making an observational claim. Why can you say that you're not making an observational claim? Because we weren't there to observe it. Man comes around day six. The Bible, though, is communicated from God through a human author we believe Moses, as he writes the book of Genesis. And really, honestly, if we can be 
honest in the room for a minute tonight. We need to be proponents of scientific inquiry. We need to be proponents of growth in scientific and and, uh, technological advancement, but not at the sacrifice of our core understanding of ethics and how this world came to be. This is the number one claim that I have heard is that Christians are anti-science because we reject things like evolution or we reject things like global warming. We reject things like evolution because it's a theory and it's a bad one and the Bible contradicts it completely and gives us a solid historical basis on which to make the claim. We also don't reject global warming. Anyone would recognize that the earth goes through different seasons of higher and lower temperatures and seasonal shifts according to time as it's expanded over centuries. I know that now I'm going to get like eight global warming questions in the Q&A. And I'm ready at some level. But at another level, I'm not because I'm not a global warming scientist. And they're new. Think about it. In the last 40 years, this global warming phenomenon is a new field inside of science. Not a bad one. For us to gauge and understand how the earth changes temperatures and how it's expanding or shrinking and how the earth is breaking down. But Christians shouldn't be surprised when we see more earthquakes, more floods, more natural disasters, the longer that we're on the earth. Because we understand that according to Genesis chapter 3, the earth is fallen, it's broken, it's falling apart, it's not getting better, it's actually getting worse. And one day, it's actually going to be destroyed and rebuilt. That's what the Bible teaches. So we're n- Christians, above all people, shouldn't be discouraged or shocked when we see the world in a state of uh, volatility, if we can even use that word. We shouldn't be surprised that, yet again, there's another hurricane that's slamming into our country. We, We shouldn't be surprised when there's tsunamis and earthquakes all over the world because we understand that the world is not becoming a better place. It's, in fact, becoming a far worse place. I know that's not really happy and encouraging, but luckily we're going into our final point, which I think is encouraging but is the most it's the oldest claim of the three and that is that the bible is historically unreliable david cannot believe the bible because it's historically unreliable i want you to go to first corinthians chapter 15 i told you we would bleed into um, some of the different things we've discussed up to this point but i want us to look at this particular passage again because i think it's instructive on this point One of the things that people will say is the Bible is historically unreliable. It makes claims that are not supported throughout history. And rather than get caught in the weeds of dates and census numbers and things like that, I thought, let's go to the biggest claim that is historically made and historically proven and historically verifiable tonight. 1 Corinthians 15 beginning in verse number one. More of the brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. 
After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. You say, David, this doesn't seem that controversial. It's incredibly controversial. This is a historical claim that the Apostle Paul makes in an open document to the letter, uh, which, is an, uh, which is a letter to the church at Corinth, that would have not been open and read privately by the church elders and then to the church, but would have been open and read for the first time audibly to the local New Testament church. This is something we often forget or don't know about New Testament letters. They did not arrive and then were the church elders would read them first, then take them to the church. There were public documents, letters written and addressed to those churches, which meant the first time that they were read, they were read publicly to the church congregation, which is really awkward if you read some of the New Testament. Because Paul specifically names names and calls people out. So imagine a letter coming to Crossway, nobody's read it, Pastor Eddie gets up on a Sunday morning and reads it and says, hey, you remember those two people who can't get along in your church? Yeah, I've been thinking about this situation and here's how you handle them. That's awkward. But it also is a public declaration of what Christians have historically believed, which means this. One of the most startling claims of the New Testament, if not the most startling claim of the New Testament, is the fact that Jesus Christ was not just a mere teacher, was not just a mere prophet, but that he was, in fact, the very Son of God, that while he lived on this earth, he was truly God and truly man. Some of you may have heard him referred to as fully God and fully man. And in living this life on earth, he lived this perfect and sinless life, and then went to the cross of his own volition, meaning he laid down his own life, was murdered, was killed, hung naked and bare on a cross, and died, was buried, and rose again. That's the claim that the New Testament authors make. That's the claim that the Apostle Paul makes. You say, David, why is this so controversial? Why is this even an objection? Obviously, this is a fairy tale. The problem is the historical underpinnings make it so it would have been ludicrous for them to make this up and write it at this particular time. You say, what? One of the things that we don't do a very good job of talking about is how soon after Jesus' ascension into heaven, the New Testament is written. It's actually written at the very most, 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death. Which means that when the Apostle Paul publicly declares that Jesus Christ, uh, in verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, of that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he goes on to list over 500 eyewitness testimonies of people who saw the risen Christ. If Paul is lying, there are people alive 
who would have known of this event, would have experienced this event, and would have called him a liar. Would have publicly written in opposition to him, would have publicly opposed him, would have publicly denounced the disciples and these eyewitnesses for claiming that they saw someone who wasn't around. This is not a document that's written hundreds of years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. This is a document that's at best 60 years written post the resurrection. So people are actually alive who experienced this, actually present when it took place, could have denounced them and didn't. Furthermore, there is outside extra-biblical evidence by Josephus, a famous author, and others who affirm the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ historically. The Bible makes claims that through centuries and history, we have backed up time and time and time and time and time again. Now, there are a litany of other objections But these are three primary objections to why you cannot understand the Bible to be literal. And I believe that in every specific objection, the Bible not only rises to the objection, but is the ultimate defeater of the objection. And continually, time after time after time after time, will defeat every objection that comes against it. You say, how can you be so sure? The testimony of Scripture... The testimony and witness of Scripture, the fact that 2,000 years after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, you can walk into a place like the Dollar Tree and buy a paperback version of the Bible for $1 in this country. No other book, and we just celebrated a few weeks ago, for those of you who are literary nerds, we celebrated banned book weeks, which I'm just like, I love banned book weeks. It's like my favorite week because I love it when people try and ban books. And you're like, well, that seems like there's some really bad stuff in books. Yeah, and there's also some really good stuff in books that they tried to ban and tried to burn and tried to exterminate off the face of the planet. And what has lasted longer than all the other banned books is the ultimate book that's been tried to be destroyed, banned, and gotten rid of. There's a reason, there's a reason why Over a decade ago, one of the most startling things that took place were when one million Bibles were smuggled into the country of China. Because it's illegal to own a Bible. I want to ask you something tonight. Not as the ultimate answer to why the Bible must be considered literal. But I want you to seriously consider this question for your own heart and mind. If the Bible is nothing more than a book of mere fairy tales, if the Bible is nothing more than a bunch of weird stories, if the Bible is nothing more than just a religious book, why has every major oppressive regime kept it from their people? Nazis, socialists, communists, have all, tried to limit their people from ever seeing the Bible. Why, in one of the countries that launched one of arguably the greatest minds, but also at the same time one of the most oppressive minds, Karl Marx called religion the opioid of the masses. 
tried to keep the Russian people from ever being able to own a Bible for years. If this Bible is not to be understood literally on the basis of its own evidence, if you, as if you say, David, it's circular reasoning to suggest that the Bible claims its own authenticity. I will grant you circular reasoning, but I also think it's foolish to reject something based on circular reasoning because you use circular reasoning every day to make decisions. I want to go to the external witness to conclude our time and simply suggest to you, if this Bible is nothing more than a group of stories like Aesop's fables or whatever the latest latest and graded animated story that Disney will pick up next week, if it is nothing more than a collection of weird religious rules and strategies to follow, why has it constantly been restricted from people? Why are people terrified that people will change when they get their hands on the Bible? It speaks to the Bible's external witness. But that's not the foundation of the argument. That's just additional testimony. The Bible is its own internal witness. And as such, it stands on its own. It needs no help. But it does have external help in the sense that for centuries... It's been on the chopping block. Get rid of it. Get it out of here. Don't let our people get it. It speaks externally to the strength of the word of God. But internally, the Bible always is its own best defense because it answers the objections that come up against it time and time and time and time again. I will close with this idea as well. If the Bible can be proven to be false, then we are to be pitied among people the most. We turn out the lights, we go home, we stop doing this if this is not to be understood to be literally true. This is the foundation and rule of faith and practice for the Christ follower. And if it's not worthy to be followed, then we all should stop and leave. But it's worthy to be followed because it contains truth that is lasting forever and ever and continuing Till the Lord comes again. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the Crave College Ministry Sermons from Crossway Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. For more information about Crave, you can connect with us online at crosswaybc.org forward slash college or on social media at Crossway Crave. Again, thanks for listening and we hope you have a great day.